are going live. All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Ask Me Anything with Gary Wayne, author of Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Gary, are you there with us? Uh-oh, I can't hear you. Gary, is your mic muted by chance? All right, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Give us one second while we try to reconnect with Gary. And thank you all for your patience. And we have some awesome, awesome questions that we're going to be asking Gary. Can you, can you, hear, can oh, you hear me now? Yes, we can. Hello. Okay. I just had my signal say that it's back up and running again. I'm not sure what happened there, but. You know, we're, we're just good. having more and more <laughs> attacks as, it, as the days go on. Feels like everything's yeah, crazy. falling apart. But I'm glad to have you here with <laughs> us. And I know that the list. Yeah, so audience... happy to be. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so happy to be back and uh, looking forward to the questions and. Uh, hopefully resolving some things that have been uh, nagging in people's minds. And uh, yeah, very much looking forward to the show tonight. Absolutely. We're excited as well to hear all of the research that you've been doing and to hear answers that people have just been eager to have somebody answer. Uh, so we're curious if you could go ahead and give out some contact information and where people can find some of the work that you have done and some of the work that you are currently working on. Sure. So the easiest contact point for me is through uh, my website at the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6 with the number 6Conspiracy.com. And on that website, there is an email contact. So if there's a document that you're looking for that I may mention, or if you want to ask me a question, get a hold of me through, uh, through that website email and I will get back to you. Or if you're on Facebook and you want to contact me through Messenger, same thing applies there, or post a question on my timeline, or tag me in a group. And uh, as long as I'm permitted to comment in that group, then I will respond. So lots of ways to get a hold of me, including Twitter, at GaryWayne63, at GaryWayne63. And I tend to put out a new commentary uh, every two weeks, week and a half to two weeks on my timeline in, in the Genesis 6 Conspiracy group. And it also goes out on Twitter. So uh, always, I think I get a, a great response for the, the various commentaries I do. I do prophecy, I do prehistory, I do secret societies, uh, all sorts of different things that uh, sort of what my book um, talks about and beyond what my book talks about. And uh, I get a chance to go in depth and detail, and that's why I may mention a few documents. And uh, so if you want that in the PDF form, uh, just get a hold of me through the uh, options that I provided. Excellent. Yes, please, everyone, go ahead and check Gary out and follow along on all of his various platforms so that you can uh, stay up to date with the awesome insights that he receives when he just stays plugged in and his research. And I know that I'm blessed when I see your post come up on my Facebook timeline. It's always such an interesting read and it always answers some of the questions that I've had. So we appreciate your work definitely. And 
For everyone that's joining us tonight, shalom, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. And we do have 14 questions that come from previous broadcasts and from people that have emailed in questions. But if there is time, and there should be at the end of this episode, we will be answering questions from the live chat. So if you have any questions, please feel free to send them in the chat. But please use all caps so I know that you are asking a question for Gary, and I will add it to the list. And if we don't get it to it tonight, we will add it to the list for next month's AMA episode with Gary Wayne. So I'll go ahead and say a quick prayer, and then we'll go ahead and jump straight into it. So Father, we just humble ourselves before you and ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, Father, live within us, Take the full reign of our hearts, of our minds, of everything that we are, Father. Please erase all of the ties that we have to this earthly world and all of the stress and the worries and the anxieties that would distract us and take away our focus from uh, seeking you earnestly in this time, Father. We thank you for Brother Gary and for all of his devotion that he has to seeking out the deeper truths within the scriptures, Father. Please be with him and lead him to only share the truth as you have revealed it to him, Father. And let us uh, just glorify your name, Father. We, we praise you and thank you so much for all that you've done and all that you do, all that you're going to do, all that you've written and in your testimony, all that you've fulfilled, and especially the promise that we have from the sacrifice that you made upon the cross, Father, for that that alone is enough to sustain us for all of this tribulation period, Father, for all that we go through. We just want to stay focused on you, Father. So please strengthen us and give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the mind to understand and know your will is above our understanding and that your purpose and your plan for our lives extends beyond the the boundaries of human wisdom and we just ask for your wisdom to come upon us and give us clarity of the questions that our hearts have so longed for father and please speak through gary and bless us we just praise you and ask that you would bless everyone that is listening and joining in now or in the future with a recording just Please touch and be with all of us, Father. We just praise you and lift you up. In the name of the Messiah, we pray. Amen. All right. Amen. So we'll go ahead and get straight into question number one. It says, Is the prince spoken of in Ezekiel 44 that that which presided over the temple Jesus or someone else? Okay, sorry. Is the prince spoken of in Ezekiel 44 that presided over the temple Jesus or someone else? It's an excellent question, and I think when you're looking for the answer to that, it sort of begins with what's the context of this particular chapter, and it's part of a series of chapters, and it's a prophetic chapter, so it's something that's going to be um, happening in the future. And so it's a question of when Ezekiel was prophesying it, when is that going to happen? And this is all about the building of the temple. And this is not the end time uh, temple where there's a sacrifice uh, that the Jewish people are going to be permitted for the first three and a half years of the last seven on a wing or an extremity of the temple. 
This, I believe, is, from my understanding of it, is the great temple that's going to be probably built for the millennium. And so this uh, prophecy is talking about, as is chapter 43, as I recall, when the glory uh, of God returns to the temple. And this is going to be the millennial rule where Jesus is ruling, as he's talked about in Revelation 20, uh, with ruling with all of those who are beheaded in the last three and a half years for not taking the mark of the beast. And it's kind of like the uh, last of the, the rising of the uh, martyred saints uh, and those who died in Christ right up to the time of Armageddon. But those who don't take the mark are going to rule with Jesus uh, for the thousand years when Satan is put into the abyss. So if we go back now to Ezekiel 44, this is, I think, the temple that is being talked about in Revelation 20, and only one person is permitted to enter and eat in front of the Lord because only one person is at God's right-hand side. So yes, I think the simple answer is, in my understanding, would be is that this is talking about Jesus and during his reign in, uh, with the temple in Jerusalem. Yes, I have to agree with you. He is our one true high priest. And I definitely agree that those latter eight chapters of Ezekiel are speaking about the millennium. So we'll go ahead and get started with question number two. It says, how many times has the world been destroyed and had a new beginning? Genesis 1, 2, Gap, and Noah's Flood. Any others? Yeah, it's such a great question, uh, particularly if you're a fan of the gap theory. And uh, uh, I have a great document on the gap if somebody wants to get a hold of me on it. I walk you through how that premise is made and also have a document that will address Exodus 20 in terms of the days of creation as to what I think that was referring to. If, uh, if you, if people want to get get a hold of me on that, I can send you that document. Now, the reason why I say that is because we don't have scripture that tells us exactly that there was more than one catastrophe, other than the flood. I lean towards uh, favoring a previous destruction in in Genesis one. Chapter 1, verse 2 is talking about the re renewal of the earth as Psalms 104 talks about when the Spirit comes, the earth is renewed. And of course, in verse 2 in Genesis uh, chapter 1, we have the Spirit hovering over the earth that's going to renew the earth. And that's just sort of a start as to what I talk about in that document in terms of making a case for uh, a destruction before the, the six days of creation, which could be a renewal of the earth. I'm not dogmatic on that, but I think, I think the angelic rebellion actually fits better there. So if there was one destruction, then as, as we carry that argument forward, were there other destructions? Again, biblically, we don't get that. Uh, we don't get a destruction um, several destructions before Genesis 1-1. What we do know is the heavens and the earth are created, and then we have the interesting wording that begins in Genesis 1-2, which leaves open the understanding for a second translation of a renewal of the earth. But when you get into polytheist religions 
and Greek mythologies and other mythologies, and of course those are all part of the religions, I recognize that, they talk about, as in the Atlantean uh, mythology, for example, uh, the Egyptians who the Atlantis story is portrayed to the Greeks from first, it talks about you're, you know, people remembering one flood, but there were many floods before that, many catastrophes. And in that line of polytheism, they have astronomy and at certain cycles of... Uh, of celestial procession, as what they're talking about in the age of Aquarius, you have various disasters that resets the earth, and this one is by fire. Now, those celestial procession uh, periods are like 2,300 years, just a little bit more than that. So uh, that's why people sort of got offside on um, 2012, because that was the start of this new new age in, in astrology. And again, I'm not an astrology fan, but it's interesting how some of the predictions out of polytheism they actually mesh a little bit with what the Bible says. And of course, they're predicting a catastrophe by fire this time. And fire and water are the two sort of catastrophes that come out of polytheism. So we don't know how old the earth is if there was a renewal of the earth. And we don't know how many destructions there would have been. Um, but my gut tells me is that to add on another destruction or several destructions as, as what polytheism does, is it takes a sort of possibility that we're given in scripture and it expands it to a level that tends to, in my opinion, would take it out of its context and lead people astray by using that method. And that's not an unusual methodology used by polytheists to try and lead people away and back into polytheism with sort of redefining the Bible. So the way I would look at it is, even though we don't know how old the universe is, when we look at a possible gap theory as opposed to the 6,000 years that we get from the time of Adam to about now, uh, we get no evidence out of scripture that there were multiple destructions but if you follow the line of the gap theory then it does leave that door open that there could have been more but we just don't have anything on that so um, I'm thinking there isn't I think there would only have been one one destruction that would have been in the angelic rebellion that would have destroyed the earth that would have uh caused a destruction so great that the earth would have to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and by, um, you know, uh, obviously the word commanding it, which is Jesus, who's the word, word of God. So uh, I would say likely one. And I think if we look at what is talked about in some of the more clearer versions out of polytheism, you have what I would look at as the... Uh, Hindu version where you have the Vedas and the Upanishads and a whole series of scriptural books that come out of Hinduism that talks about this war of the gods and this destructive power. And I think that's likely what happened and is a reflection of what is going to happen in Re Revelation 12 when there's war in heaven and all the rebellious angels and Satan are cast down to the earth for the last three and a half years of the last seven years. And that destruction is going to be similar to what happened um, in the gap 
if that in fact did happen. And like I say, I do lean that way, but I'm not dogmatic that way because if Jesus doesn't return when he does, the whole earth and all life is going to be destroyed. So I think it's a similar type of destruction that may have gone on between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. All right, I hope everybody uh, took thorough notes on that. That was a lot of information. We appreciate it. Uh, definitely it's going to be interesting to see when the stars fall and all of this war of the quote-unquote gods takes place again. That's insane, and that's awesome that we have you here to give us so much information based on all of these world religions. We really appreciate it. So with that said, we'll move on to the next question. The third question is, I believe that you either mentioned or implied that certain members of the Illuminati believe that either Satan is, is the promised Savior or that Satan has the same amount of power as Yahweh. Do these schools of thought exist? And if so, would that be the reason why they think that they will not be subject to judgment and or they will win the battle against Yahweh and conquer and rule the world in the end? Yeah, another another great question. And uh, not only have I alluded to it about with what the Illuminati believe, but with what polytheism believes. And if you, when, you're, when you're looking at the secret societies, whether it's the Rosicrucians, which are above the Illuminati, or the Freemasons, or their various branch groups, they're what you call Gnostics. And even though they might call themselves Gnostic Christians, they're still polytheists, and they don't believe that Jesus is the Word of God or the Son of God, that he was just immortal and just another, what they would call a prophet sent on the way to help humankind evolve into gods just as uh, Zarathustra or Confucius or Hermes or any one of the so-called prophets that they tend to worship. Buddha would be another one um, that is amongst polytheism in terms of these prophets sent to, to guide humankind. And so where I'm going with that is that Gnosticism and the religion of the secret societies is a polytheist religion, and it's the same religion and same pantheon that is around the world. And so it's the same original religion that began before the flood that has just come up with vernacular names and for the gods in the pantheon and uh, some local vernacular cultural idiosyncrasies, but essentially the same religion. And that religion is something they call a dualist religion. And what they mean by dualism is this idea that you have the yin and the yang, um, good versus evil, that they are in perfect balance and they're always at odds with each other and they're always fighting each other, but they will fight in perpetuity forever because even though one might get the upper hand for a little bit, then it comes back and the balance is restored. And you see this in all sorts of their literature and all sorts of science fiction, particularly you know, the most famous one would be Star Wars where you have the uh, dark force and, and the good force. And uh, that's that typical dualism and that story just sort of continues and they're always at odds with each other. And you've got this polytheist religion that's in their inverted uh, good guy scenario and 
they place the monotheist religion or the oppressive religion as being the dark force or the God of the Bible. And so they're always pushing this agenda. And so this ideology of this dualism goes back to the chief gods, uh, as polytheists see it. So polytheists would see uh, Hillel or Satan as the chief god and would be equal. They do recognize uh, the God of the Bible. They might call him Adone or other names uh, like uh, Demiraz or Ieldeboath. Um, but it's always the God of the Bible and that they're referring to that is another powerful angel or powerful God, as they would look at it, but no more powerful than Satan. And that's that balance, that they're always good versus evil. And so what they're looking for is to win their own realm, to live separate from the authority and the oppression of the God of the Bible as they would look at it, and that they believe because Satan is as powerful as the God of the Bible that they can actually win that war to a point where they can create a stalemate and have their own realm. And this is the delusion that is then passed on to the secret societies and the polytheist religions at the adept level, because none of these secrets are taught below the adept level in any form or fashion around the world in any of the polytheist religions or the secret societies that are also uh, around the world. And they're part of the same organizational structure. So they believe because they're told that they can actually win their freedom against the oppressive God of the Bible, as they would call it, and that they are doing just as what the fallen angels did, that they won their freedom and that they've won uh, that through fighting the God of the Bible. And now there's telling humans that you need to fight for your freedom and we'll give you all of this knowledge and it'll be this utopian, but they're only going to deliver dystopia. So when people can't get their heads around from a Christian perspective, why people of secret societies and polytheist religions think that they can win, it's, this is what they're being taught by their gods and by their religion. And so, no, they don't believe that, that they are going to face the judgment. In fact, they believe if they can win, at least in this battle that's going on in this world, as they would look at it, because they believe there are many worlds where these battles are going on, is that they will not only avoid judgment through winning this rendezvous with destiny, which is Armageddon, which is what they want to bring on. Um, and they want it sooner than later, but they will accept the, or, or the ordained times if they have to. And of course they will, because it can't happen until the restrainer is removed. But they want this rendezvous and destiny, destiny to win. If they win, there is no judgment of them, but it, they will judge all those who are loyal to the God of the Bible, Christians and whoever else refuses the mark of the beast and whoever else believes in God around the world and is not going to be part of this. Those are the ones that are going to be beheaded in the last three and a half years. And these are the ones that they will come along and judge. They expect that they will be the ones that are separating uh, 
the the wheat from the from the tares, and the ones that are going to be burnt up are the ones who oppose them and their fight for freedom. And so they're going to turn everything upside down in the end time, including a false Armageddon to prop up their false antichrist or false Christ to fool people. And then they're going to wreak absolute havoc on people who are still here that are following uh, God and Jesus in the last three and a half years and who are not taking the mark and are not worshiping Satan, just as Babylon does the same thing in the first three and a half years. So they think that they're going to be the ones that are executing judgment on the people who are not deemed worthy to evolve into godhood, which would be Christians. Thank you for that excellent, thorough answer. It is crazy that anyone would think that they can't, that they can escape judgment, and that they could overthrow the infinite one. It makes no sense to me. But I'll move on to our next question, and this is yeah. a well. The angels don't. Just jumping in on that, the mm -hmm. angels know they can't win. Right. Uh, what they were trying to do was prevent humankind from. Um, being raised above them in the future time and that perhaps they may make a case for themselves and that they won't be sent to, to the lake of fire. But, you know, they didn't uh, anticipate the resurrection otherwise. And people say, well, how do you know that um, they didn't anticipate the resurrection? And it, and it says in the Bible in the New Testament that, it, you know, had they known about the resurrection, they wouldn't have permitted Jesus to be crucified even though they wanted him to. So, I mean, that was absolutely hidden from them. But after the resurrection, they knew their fate was sealed. But that doesn't stop them from deceiving their followers. Very true. Yes, thank you for that. Uh, we'll go ahead and move on to our next question. And this one uh, could take you a while to answer, depending on how thoroughly you want to go into it. <laughs> but it says, are you a proponent of flat earth? Why or why not? Actually, I'm neither. I'm agnostic on it. And, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, it is one of those uh, topics that um, if you really wanted to try and prove it one way or another, it is an investment of time that is maybe decades and decades and I don't think it's my calling. So I haven't, as a, and I'm, I'm a contrarian. So I want to very verify things myself as opposed to what people say one way or the other. So I've not spent that time and I recognize both arguments. Um, I will say I'm agnostic, but I lean slightly away uh, again without doing the research. But I'll tell people just sort of quickly why I, I lean slightly away, but I don't dismiss the flat earth. It all depends on the deception and who's deceiving who. And as you get into the layers of this, when I look at the history of the flat earth, I recognize what Enoch is talking about. And I recognize what the verses are in the Bible. But I also recognize that this whole symbology and, and um, sort of understanding of this domed earth is a 
doctrine that was very common in polytheism and in Gnosticism up until the last uh, few hundred years, and I still think it, it may still be part of their belief system, even though they're using the global thing to uh, possibly deceive people in, a, in, in another direction. So I, it's roots where it comes out of the secret societies and the polytheist religions has my hairs up a little bit. And the other area that I'm concerned with is just from my own experience where if I'm like in an airplane, I can clearly see a curvature of the earth, which I, you know, one can say that you can be seeing that curvature of the dome. I recognize that. But if you continue that way, you continue to see that, um, that curvature. And again, that's not an end, end all be all, but I also have considerations on simple questions like 24 hour light on one end and uh, 24 hour darkness on the other end of the world at the same time. I also have um, concerns in terms of how some of the, uh, um, I'm trying to think of, of the word, uh, eclipses work in terms of the sun and the size and how they're facing each other, that doesn't quite make some sense to me. But like I say, I could also now make an argument uh, in terms of biblical scripture, which most of, I think this audience would be aware of, of all of those verses that does talk seemingly like a flat earth. But I remain agnostic on it, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole um, that I'm not going to come up from in trying to uh, prove it one way or another. And for me, it's not a faith issue. Uh, it's more that it doesn't really matter whether it's flat or it's global to me. It doesn't change anything in terms of faith and doesn't change anything in terms of the end time. But certainly, I also recognize the argument that this whole globe thing could be used to just deceive people in this universe thing as being uh, part of the global theory, could be a way of introducing the aliens to deceive people for the end time. So uh, this is a web that can, can spin uh, in so many different directions that um, I've left it alone, and I'm, I'm fine with that. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate the humble and modest answer. I definitely agree with you that you can spend decades doing research into trying to understand and put together the proper cosmology. And there are some biblical passages that, uh, you know, definitely point us towards a direction of understanding that either way, there can be a deception used to further the Antichrist deception and the deception of the fallen angels. So I really I appreciate that you are sticking to your calling and you're sticking with the prophecies, sticking with the Genesis 6 conspiracy and understanding that aspect of things because I, I believe that there are people that are called to go into different places, you know, where many members but one body. And yeah, that was a great answer. Thank you for answering that. So we'll go ahead and skip on to the next question. This question comes from Maya, and she asks, I want to track the fallen angel religion from its inception. What are good sources to begin reading? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of scriptural holy books that are out there for the particular uh, religions around the world. Uh, not all of them are, you know, straightforward and, and, and easy reading. Uh, 
uh, not all of them and none of them would connect to the other religions around the world. So, um, but they're all talking about similar events. So the question that Maya raises is, is you know, what, what are some of the sources that you could sort of get this back to the fallen angel um, uh, religion from its inception? And, you know, I think the first uh, book to read is, is first Enoch, um, even though uh, it's not uh, a canon. And I know it's got a couple of small issues in there, but it runs 99% true with uh the Bible, and uh, there are a couple of corruptions to be aware of in there. Again, I have a document on that if people want to know which ones those are. Uh, I name um, most of them, but I, I like Enoch a lot, so I'm not here to speak poorly about Enoch because I love the rest of the information that's in there. But we don't have a Hebrew manuscript, manuscript for it. We just have Aramaic and Giaz and not a full um, Hebrew manuscript to, to verify things. And that's why I think there's a few corruptions in there. But getting back on point, it talks about the seraphim angels or the watcher angels in, in the book of Enoch that are the governors of the world. And the, the, the knowledge that is going to create the various religions. And so it's the knowledge that is uh, the, that, is being developed by the antediluvians and in, in Enoch and the knowledge that is going to marry up with it uh, to accelerate that knowledge is where the religions begin from. And the, the knowledge that comes is being developed is what they call the seven liberal sciences or the seven sacred sciences uh, that uh, they believe was taught to Adam while he was in Eden to do his agrarian duties and whatever else he needed, but was being taught by God. And this knowledge is passed on to Abel and Cain and to Seth. Of course, uh, Abel is, is killed and Cain and Seth are going to take them in two totally uh, different directions in terms of the development, one for good, one for evil. So that classic sort of dualism again, right, um, that the polytheists like to believe in. And Cain has his firstborn son, Enoch. And it's this Enoch that develops the seven sciences into the seven disciplines. And he's the one who's going to marry that knowledge up with the, with the, with the watchers. And so to house this knowledge, they create the mysteries or the mystical religions, and uh, the Essenes would call that Enochian mysticism, or the Enochian religion. And this is the true religion of the Antediluvian Epoch, in, from what my research has, has um, found. And secret societies are branched off on that to develop certain aspects of, of those seven sciences. And that's why their st structure is the same as a mystical religion. And all of the secrets to this knowledge is held at the adept level and, not, and it's not meant for the mundane level below the adept level. And so that's fine. I've just sort of named where and talked about where and how the mystical religions are formed, but where do you find information on that other than First Enoch, where it gives you that basis for the knowledge and this worship that's going on and, and following the fallen angels because that's they're leading the antediluvian world into rebellion. There's a, a, 
a book that's out called The History of Freemasonry that was written in the mid-1800s by a fellow by the name of Albert Mackey. And he was an adept of, of, this, of, the, of the Masons and uh, one of the patriarchs of sort of the modern uh, version of secret societies. Uh, and he collected all of the information on this in the various legends that came out of the Polychronicon and has documented that. So if you look up uh, the history of Freemasonry, uh, Freemasonry by Albert Mackey, he will tell you about Enoch. He will tell you about mysticism. He'll tell you about various secret societies. And he'll tell you about what their version of what happened in the flood and uh, the development of the mysteries and everything like that. And I would also say if you want to read uh, another more narrower version, you're going to read probably the Vedas and the Upanishads and the various Hindu uh, uh, Vedas where uh, they're going to tell you about their prehistory and they believe that that goes back about 6,000 years or so or even more um, as opposed to the secular saying they, they can't validate it past about you know 1,000 BC and some 2,000 BC but they actually believe it goes back further. Another book if you want it all sort of put together on how this comes together and how the knowledge develops into um, the mystical religions and the secret societies, which are part of the mystical religions, um, buy my book because my first my book is going to talk about that all the way through, right from its inception, right to the end time, and how everything's connected. So those would be three good sources I would recommend. Uh, read first Enoch, Albert Mackey on the history of masonry, which is rooted in the, the polytheist religions and the Genesis six conspiracy. And I think you'll, you'll, and in my book, you'll see all through the end notes, all of the sources that, that I've used. And you can take that um, bibliography and end notes and dig further into where that information comes from. Wow, that is some definitely great resources. And where can people buy your book again? They can get it through my website at the genesis6conspiracy.com if you want to get a signed copy, or you can um, order it through amazon.ca or amazon.com or Amazon around the world. And you can also get it through Barnes & Noble. And if you wanted to support your local, local bookstore, if it's not shelved there, you can have them order it in because it's distributed by Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania and they supply all of the retailers. And it's also available in Kindle format. So if you want a digital version. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. We'll move on to the next question that comes from Jennifer. And she asks, do you believe Lilith was actually real? There are two different scriptures about the creation of woman. Yeah, I'm not sure what the the second um, part of the question is referring to, although I think directionally I might know what that's being referred to. Uh, but do I believe Lilith was real? Well, we do get 
an account of the word Lilith in the Bible, as you take that back to Hebrew, and that's in in Isaiah, where you have the screech owl, and it's going to go back to Lilith, and it, it hops like a goat on as it, as it walks. And so, but uh, how other people create Lilith to the Bible, I, I don't necessarily agree with. I think there's a good possibility that in polytheism and in Sumerian mythology is where the Lilith mythology or account originates, that she was likely more of a uh, offspring of the angels of, of some form and more of a, a demon type of uh, individual and part of the the royal bloodlines because she's part of the whole i guess i would call it allegorical uh terminology of female bloodlines which is the fairy and the owl bloodline of uh, the matriarchal bloodline of that goes back to tiamat in sumerian mythology who's the dragon queen just as lilith is is an offspring of tiamat and is also considered as a dragon queen as well. So I think if there's any legitimacy to that being being real, it goes back to the same Nephilim story, but from a Sumerian version. How Lilith tends to get mingled into uh, being a consort of Adam in Eden before Eve is created is something that I think enters into Judaism through mysticism as in Kabbalism and the Essenes and all of the other various mystical sects that um, were interbred with the regular sects like the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees. And there are several smaller sects. I won't bore everybody with all of the names, but there was more than just a couple mystical sects. But where this belief system tends to come from and pops up is about the time when uh, the southern kingdom of uh, Judah uh, is overtaken and defeated by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and taken back in the first diaspora of the Judaic people as opposed to the, the northern kingdom, Israel, which is the Assyrians, but are taken back to Babylon. And, of course, in Sumeria, and they're going to get inundated with a lot of the religious nature and the history of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans and the Akkadians and the Sumerians and um, that all lived in, in generally the same area that goes back even before the flood. And so I think this is where that mythology enters into the mystical side, the Kabbalistic side that now comes back with uh, the Jewish people after the 70 years and are going to resettle in the, the land of the covenant. And so in that is where Lilith makes the debut as this consort for Adam. And I think this is a mystical corruption. And so I don't think that that's legitimate. We don't get anything scriptural that Adam had a consort. So unless there's something in the Bible that says scripturally he had a consort, and the only way he could have had a, another consort is with either a Nephilim-type character or um, you know, even before Genesis 6, which we don't have scripture for, 
uh, or a fallen angel. So that would make a case that if Lilith was there, she was more of a fallen angel, but she seems to be in the description more of a Nephilim or a lower God type of individual as she had parents. So that's why it gets a bit contradictory as you look at how the legend is put together and trying to match up who and what she was, but she was more than human and uh, probably a demigod by all of the descriptions. So when we look at the next part of the question is were there two different uh, scriptures about the creation of woman? I, I'm a proponent, whereas I said, I'm not as dogmatic on day six or I mean on uh, Genesis one, one to one, two with the gap theory or the renewal of the earth as I like to call it. Uh, I am more dogmatic that there's two creations going on, that the day six account does not line up with the Eden account. And the Eden account, uh, Eve is created sometime after Adam. And in the day six account, male and female are created at the same time and in numbers and told to multiply and uh, tame the earth and to uh, <clears throat> eat anything that they want. Whereas Adam is created individually and Eve sometime later and from a rib and it's a completely different story. And that's just the sort of cutting edge of all the details that are different. I do not believe and how I approach scripture, that scripture contradicts itself and the details won't contradict themselves either. And if that's the case, and that's my belief, then I believe there's two creations. So I would say you have women being created in day six, and then you have Eve, who's created from Adam, who was created for a special commission to help raise humankind above angels in the future world that we talked to earlier in the show. And that would be the two sources for creation of females. Um, but one has to remember is only eight survived the flood and they come from Adam and Eve. So uh, all things are fine with, uh, from that aspect that Eve is the mother of all living. So again, on, I'm not sure that what are uh, where the second part is, is there are two different scriptures about creation of women. Those would be the two that I would go to and I would stay away from the Lilith um, interpretation and insertion into scripture. Excellent. Thank you for that very clear answer and the thorough details that you provided. We'll go ahead and move on to our seventh question. And we have about eight minutes until we take a quick break. Now, this question comes from Mike. Who exactly is the Archangel Michael, and why did he dispute over the body of Moses in that because he's, or is that because he is to be one of the two witnesses? Yeah, so I want to make sure I'm understanding the question right. I don't think it's talking about um, Michael being one of the two witnesses. Um, because Michael is part of the Archangel group and uh, has, I think, a larger role. And Michael is the one who has the ability and the authority and the strength to take on Satan, uh, obviously supported by, by, by God and all of that, as he's the one who is going to wrestle with Satan and throw him down the earth 
uh, in the end time in Revelation 12. And so what we do know is, is he is a powerful archangel. And the thought is there are seven of these powerful archangels, um, at least as they're listed in Enoch. Uh, although the Bible doesn't give us seven, the only two archangels that were provided are Michael and Gabriel. But that, to me, uh, would suggest that maybe the question is asking, is Michael and Gabriel the two witnesses? And that's a distinct possibility because they are the two candlesticks uh, that uh, are sitting uh, before uh, God's throne in um, Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, just as the two witnesses are called the two candlesticks. So one has to be open to the fact that because we only have two archangels named, they could be the two witnesses and the ones that are seemingly overcome by the one who comes up from the abyss, who I think is a bad Napoleon Azazel. And again, I have a document on that if people want me to connect um, all of those dots together, get a hold of me, I'll give it to you. And then they're the ones that, you know, rise back up because you can't kill Michael or Gabriel, although people will think that they are. Uh, so it's possibility that Michael is part of that. Um, and so why is Michael, and I'm going to come back around here again to answer the rest of where, where I was heading in that direction. So why did Michael dispute over the body of Moses? Could be that he's one of the two witnesses that a lot of people think, just as he was part of the transfiguration as well as, well as Elijah in, um, in the New Testament. Uh, although I don't think it's going to be uh, Moses. I do think Moses is going to be, you know, part of the seven shepherds and perhaps eight, um, as it's talked about, for the second exodus. And I actually think Elijah might be part of that as well as part of the shepherds. What we do know is if they're humans, they're likely not to have suffered the first death because they are suffering a death in, or at least what appears to be a death before they're sent back up to heaven. And they are prophets because they are going to prophesy uh, horrible things that are uh, going to be happening in the first three and a half years of the last seven years. And people are going to celebrate their death when the one who comes up out of the beast appears to have overcome them and killed them. Um, and it's going to be like a Christmas party. It's going to be like the holidays. They're going to be so happy that these people who are prophesying destruction are, are, are defeated. And, but then three days later, they're going to be taken back up into heaven. And I think they're part of the first fruits as well. So my gut feeling is, is Michael and Gabriel aren't the two witnesses. Um, and you can also make just quickly, you can make a, an argument that Perhaps it's Jesus and the Holy Spirit that are the two witnesses, again, because of the two candles uh, sitting uh, uh, around the throne of God. But my, I would tend more to, to more as humans. And so I would say that if you're looking at people who haven't died, Elijah might be one of them, even though I think they're gonna, he's going to be more of the second exodus. Enoch. Um, in is possibly one of them. And I know people will make an argument that it doesn't say he didn't die, that he was taken to heaven, um, perhaps. Uh, but I think he might be uh, a very good one for being one of the two witnesses. And I would also say that there's another one is the disciple that Jesus loved because at the end of the book of John, it talks about... Um, uh, what is it to you if I want him to remain alive until I come again? 
And it, it's not that he said that he wasn't going to die. It's just that he would remain until Jesus came again because he would be a good witness for, for Jesus. And so I think possibility whoever the disciple Jesus loved, um, and some people think it's John, could be Nathaniel, or it could be Lazarus as well. But Lazarus did suffer the first death even though that's the one Jesus talks about loving and mourned when he died. So anyways, I'm going down this rabbit hole of the two witnesses, and that's probably not quite where I should be going and naming all the possibilities, even though uh, Mike is asking about the two witnesses. So let's get back to who I think Michael is, other than being an archangel. Obviously, he's very, very powerful. You know, when I first started getting into prophecy, I used to think the restrainer was... The Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying it's not because obviously Jesus says when he went back and ascended to heaven to stay until he comes back again, he would send the Holy Spirit. And so the natural extension of that is, is when the Holy Spirit is recalled back to uh, heaven, then the end time comes and then Jesus returns uh, after that. But over the last, say, 10 years or so, I've been leaning more to that I think Michael is the restrainer. And if you go into the book of Daniel, where it talks about uh, Michael fighting the Persians and the Greeks are coming, uh, and he fights for uh, Israel, and he's the defender of Israel, as Daniel 12 talks about, in Daniel 12, 1, and that's the time when Michael rises, and also Revelation 12, where Michael is the one who throws Satan down to the earth. I think he might be the restrainer in terms of how he's described. But we're not told exactly who the restrainer is. So I think I lean more towards Michael when it says who exactly is the Archangel Michael. I think he's the restrainer. Wow, thank you for that uh, very, very interesting uh, concept about the two witnesses. It is really interesting. You mentioned Zechariah 4, and it gives uh, a, quite a bit of detail, an image, a vision of the menorah, and then the two uh, olive trees that stand alongside yep. the menorah and pour out their, uh, the golden oil out of themselves. And it's so funny in that chapter that you see Zechariah, he asks, multiple times to the angel giving him the vision and he says you know what what are these olive trees and then again he doesn't get an answer and he's like what are these olive trees and the only answer that yeah. he gets is at the very end of the chapter and he just simply says these are the two anointed ones that stand by the lord of the yes. whole earth and that's it yes <laughs> that, that's, that's it yep. and and you can use Zechariah to make a greater than human case for them. Um, but I would say even greater than the archangels then. And also, I would also go to Revelation 11, where it says, these are the two candlesticks before the Lord. So I think it's telling us that Zechariah is telling us about them. But again, it's a mystery. And that's probably why it's still a mystery to us. But all depends on how you want to come at that. We won't know until they're here but they do appear to suffer the first death. And I think that's an indication that they're prophets and they do prophesying for, for three and a half years of their commission. Awesome. Well, thank you for that information. And we'll go ahead and 
Uh, Gary, please take a quick break and grab a sip of water. We appreciate all of the answers and the thorough insights that you've been giving to us tonight. Uh, for everyone that's joining us in the live chat, we really appreciate you uh, hanging out with us. And if you have any questions, please write in the chat with all capital letters your question, and I will respond and let you know that I've got your question. We'll try to get through as many as we can tonight, and then hopefully we'll have some extra time at the end of the show, and we'll get to answer some of the questions from the live chat. But yeah, with that said, I'm going to go ahead and take you to an updated version of this awesome trailer that we have for a conference where Gary Wayne is going to be joining us on March 27th through 29th, 2020. So if you will, hold tight. Sacred Word Revealed comes to Atlanta, Georgia on March 27th through 29th, 2020. Purposed to reveal end times mysteries. To prepare the final generation, we must don the full armor of God. Featuring Zen Garcia, Gary Wayne, Stephen and Yana Ben Noon, Dr. Stephen Pigeon, Justin James Garcia, Dr. Joy Pugh, Rob Skiba, Laurel Austin. Buy your tickets now at sacredwordrevealed.com Alright, I hope you all enjoyed the trailer and if you did notice at the end of our speakers list we did add Rob Skiba! So we also added Laurel Austin and we really appreciate uh, your time and checking out the conference. If you do have any questions about the conference, please check out sacredwordrevealed.com or email myself or my wife Joy, who is actually the person that's behind the scenes working to get all the details squared away. And you can email us both at sacredwordpublishingllc at gmail.com. And we'd love to talk with you. And we're also going to be doing a Georgia Guidestones trip. So for everyone that's arriving our Friday, uh, the 27th of March, we're going to be doing registration that night. But during that day, we're actually going to join together. We're going to take a about an hour, hour and a half trip up to the Georgia Guidestones. We're going to check it out, talk together, take some photos, maybe do a couple videos for everybody. And then we're going to make our way back down to the conference and have an awesome weekend. So, yeah, this is Gary's first time hearing that we added Rob Skiba, too. How do you feel about that, Gary? What a wonderful addition. He is a uh, extraordinary speaker, extraordinarily knowledgeable, and just a genuinely great human being. So if uh, people have not seen uh, Rob do a presentation, uh, they're in for a treat. And he always brings a ton of excellent information. That is very kind, and we greatly appreciate it. So did you get some time to have some water? I did. 
All right. Are you ready and to I'm get ready to go. into it? Let's do it. I am. I Absolutely. All right. Our next question is very short. It's from Harriet, and it says, Are the real Israelites black Africans? Yeah, I'm not, again, not quite sure of the total context of the question, but I'll answer it the best as I can, because when I hear people talking about Israelites as being black, they're talking in two different um, sort of points of view on it. One being, were the original Israelites all black, or are Israelites um, the black, you know, did they migrate into Africa, and that's, you know, who they are today. Uh, so I'll try and answer both of those as as, uh, as respectfully as I can, because I know there's a lot of people who may disagree with me on this. So when I look at who Israel is, um, I mean, they're the Semites, and we know um, the area of the world that they lived, and we know the descendants, at least the remnant, and I know a lot of people may dismiss uh, the people of uh, the Jewish people today as being false Jews and have been taken over, but there's still a remnant in, in those people who are prophesied to be in the end time um, in the land of the covenant that God's going to step up and protect and fight for and people who are going to flee Jerusalem um, at the time of the abomination and people who are going to be doing a sacrifice on a wing of the temple for the first uh, three and a half years of the last seven. So we do know that these are part of greater Israel. And we don't get any indication in the Bible that they are anything than the people who come out of uh, Abraham's seed and uh that seed right through to the time of the nation of Israel being created and then some of the various wives. And yes, there, there, there uh, is some Canaanite that, that is in there. But again, those don't tend to be sort of the, the black people. So I see no basis for an argument that the original Israelites were black. Uh, and I'm not trying to put skin in here in any sort of um, racial manner or not, because skin color is irrelevant to salvation, and it's not about that. All I'm just saying is, is there's no scripture to support that, and the logic doesn't tend to seem to support that. Now, when we talk about the diasporas and the punishment for violating the covenant, you have the northern tribe, which is Jacob or Israel, as it's referred to in prophecy, they are dispersed by the Assyrians and spread all over the world and not just to Africa. So I think when it talks about the second exodus and it talks about their being sold into slavery around the world and dispersed to the four winds of heaven and will be collected from the four winds of heaven, that this means around the world, which will also include that some of them migrated into Africa, and when they are awakened and recognize that they are the lost tribes in the end time, I expect many of them will be black. Um, but they will be from all races of the world because they will have probably intermarried with those people over the, the generations. So to limit Israel to being black in either of those accounts, I just, I, it's, 
not where I come from, and it's not my understanding of Scripture, and it's got no agenda to it other than I don't have Scripture to support that that expectation or claim whatsoever. But I don't dismiss that some of the people who will awaken as lost Israel will be black. I, I fully expect that, just as I expect that we're going to see Chinese and uh, all races around the world. Amen. A multitude from all nations and kindreds and tongues. I can't wait. It's going to be great. All right. Our next question is from Chance. Do you think the CERN, C-E-R-N, is the key for opening the pit? Well, I think the polytheists think that's the case and that they're the ones behind, you know, the science and the technology and probably being aided uh, by fallen angels and demons to accelerate this knowledge so that they could let um, the angels the impassioned angels that were locked into the abyss before the flood for creating the Nephilim and causing the first flood out before the ordained time. And certainly, you know, when we look at the abyss, it's probably located somewhere in the earth in another dimension. And they need something like CERN where you have uh, quantum computing intermarried uh, with a I, that works in different dimensions to be able to get into uh, a prison that's in another dimension uh, to unlock it. And certainly they would like to create the end time at a time other than the ordained time. However, they can't. And so until the restrainer is removed and until um, that happens, then the abyss is not going to, to be open. And what we're told in Revelations is that an angel descends down from the sky to with the keys to the abyss and opens it up. Now, that could be a fallen angel, but typically the angels that are doing things and sent from heaven are good, loyal angels. So I think the keys would be held by uh, an angel in heaven, and that a specific angel goes to unlock it. Uh, in the end time, in Revelation 9. And that will happen after the start of the last seven years, but, but before the midpoint. Because as I had mentioned earlier, is you have the one who comes up out of the abyss, which is Abaddon in Hebrew, Apollyon in Greek, and likely Azazel, uh, is going to come up and slay the two witnesses. And he's also the one that's likely going to avatar antichrist which is the son of perdition which goes back linguistically to apollyon and again that handout is extraordinary for people who want to uh, make all of those connections get a hold of me through my website or on facebook and i'll send it to you um, the antichrist the one who creates the eighth empire that revelation talks about that comes out of the seven in the end time that rules for three and a half years after he's crowned in the temple at the abomination is the one who once was, now is not, but who will come again and comes up out of the abyss. And we also know it's human because he receives a mortal head wound in Revelation 13, uh, but actually survives. So I think this is, you know, this counterfeit resurrection and part of his uh, pedigree for, for Antichrist. And I think this is when he becomes avatared by 
Azazel or Abaddon Napoleon who helps give him all of this powers because we also know in Daniel that Antichrist is going to honor the God of forces and I'm not going to go through the whole linguistics on it here but it's an interesting thing that's part of that document on Azazel that I was talking about that's Mao's which goes back that connects back to Azazel linguistically and I'll walk you through that in the handout so I think all of that is connected. So I think that uh, the, the abyss is going to be opened by an angel of God as opposed to an angel who falls from the sky, which could be interpreted, or a star that falls from the sky, which could be interpreted as a fallen angel. But I think as what happens in Revelation with whether or not it's the seals or anything that's going on, these are angels working on behalf of God to, uh, to let loose uh, the the time of the end so that they can have that rendezvous with destiny and ultimately end up losing as it's recorded in Revelation 19. So I believe just to come full circle on this, the polytheists want it to be the key. So it may in fact be a key that is provided to them from a technological perspective, uh, just as a, a um, Occultism has a lot of grammatria, which is based on uh, numerology and matrixes and all of the stuff that works into high-end occult sciences and also as part of, as you get into the different meanings of, of gematria, it is also known as a portal or a gateway to other dimensions. So, and that goes back to the, the math and the knowledge and the technology and that aspect. So it may be permitted that they have that technological uh, key to open up that at the end time, but only when it's ordained and authorized by God, as you get somewhere after the start of the, the last seven years, but before the midpoint. All right, thank you. Uh, we'll move on to our next question that comes from Ander. They say, do you think ginger people are in any way connected to any ancient bloodline? Red hair, green eyes, white, pale skin. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a question that hits uh, close to home. <laughs> um, I have pale skin. I have hazel eyes. Lots of red hair in my family. Um, I have Irish and Scottish roots. And, of course, the Tuatha Danan, who are the tribe of uh, Danu um, and Scythians, are one branch of what the polytheists i believe were the original nephilim that escaped out of uh, scythia and uh, migrated north uh, and west to ireland and scotland and straight north up to uh, sweden and germany and denmark and into the ukraine and into russia and that branch uh, that went east and north were blonde-haired uh, blue-eyed and, and white-paled skin was where the airy inside to that mythology comes from. And then, as they believe, they also went south into Sumeria and would have intermarried with uh, and intermixed with the uh, people Nimrod was leading after Babel and created uh, the modern dynasties and royal families. And they continued to 
uh, intermarry into the Amalekim and the Horim, and uh, also related to the uh, the Hittite creation as well into that royal dynasty. Um, and you know, some of those offspring sort of dynasties would have been like the Kassites and the Mitanni. And it's also believed that those bloodlines then intermarried into. Uh, the people that fled from Babel over to Egypt to start the second pillar of polytheism with Nimrod having the Magi in Chaldea and the Egyptian religion, which branches out to all of the religions around the world after the flood. And then Nimrod's relatives and hybrid descendants um, would have intermarried and or usurp is probably more accurately the word uh, as I, I look at history um, taking over the Egyptian kingship, and then you've got the Nephilim dynasties that are basically going to spread out through, through the whole world. So having said all of that, then certainly from a polytheist perspective is, is they believe that. Um, and if I match that up with what Atlantean descriptions are, uh, Egyptian descriptions, and uh, Central America, descriptions of these giants that were before the flood those were the two parallel descriptions that were provided and i think there's a strong um, possibility that people who have these traits as i do um, would have some sort of dna or um perhaps bloodline that would would descend back to them and i think that uh, there's a good case that you can make that those are certainly traits uh, that would have some of that connecting back. But the, the good thing is, is that physical traits have nothing to do with salvation. So whether or not you have Rh negative blood, as a lot of people believe, um, links back to uh, the Nephilim and the gods. And again, if you want a great document on understanding Rh negative, get a hold of me. I'll send that to you. Um, and it doesn't really matter whether or not it's your bloodline or the gene of ISIS that uh, the secular people believe is the DNA part uh, that goes back. It's because it is irrelevant to your salvation. Only your faith in Jesus is what counts um, and uh, has nothing to do with your physical attributes. But yeah, simple answer is after a very long answer is, is I think there's a, a good possibility of that um, because you don't get red hair and pale skin um, people all around the world, but you do have that migration that ends up in sort of the northern regions as with the blue, ha uh, the blonde hair and the blue eyes. So I think that is demonstrating some sort of connection there. All right. Thank you for that answer. We'll move on to the next question. It's from the Great Grunge. And I think that a lot of people probably have this question. It says, when the book of Enoch speaks of the many evils that the fallen ones taught to us, such as pharmacaea or the cutting of roots, does natural medicine and holistic medicine fall into that? So it goes back to this whole understanding of knowledge and the knowledge of, of good and evil as sort of the principle. My sort of understanding is, is knowledge is neutral. It's neither good nor evil, but it can be used for good and it could be used for evil. And what goes on with the knowledge that is passed on 
by the fallen angels in Enoch to the knowledge that was being developed in the seven sciences from Enochian mysticism and all the way down to Lamech, and you get a hint of some of that knowledge and its uh, disciplines uh, with the offspring of, of uh, Lamech with uh, Tubal Cain and Jubal and Jubal, and, and Jubal is the uh, uh, one who developed masonry and wire that sort of discipline in terms of where the, the Freemasons take their roots back to. So that's their roots for the beginning of secret societies. It's how they use that information. And, you know, they created, you know, like pharmacacia or sorcery, which is where pharmacacia roots back in, in several versions and particularly in Revelations back to being sorcery goes back to pharmacacia as a Greek word. They use those, these this pharmacacia to create things to lead people away from God. They created thing, uh, these concoctions to have, you know, to cause ab abortion. So it's how they used it. And so that's the thing that people need to keep in mind. And we do need to be, because we have sorceries that goes back to uh, pharmacacia as a word, as part of the things that is prevalent in the end time, we have to be wary of the drugs that are being used. But we also have to understand that drugs can help us as well. So the risk gets to be is what are those drugs doing to us? And uh, some of us need some of those drugs to continue uh, to, to live, but if we have any sort of knowledge that this could be doing something that alters our DNA, now that crosses a threshold that is going to force a very, very, very difficult situation for people. But I think what they're talking about in the end time is, is getting people sort of dumbed down so that they can lead them away from God. So all sorts of prescription drugs that they're going to be maybe changing to a level to deceive people to take the mark of the beast uh, by the midpoint of the last seven years. So I think that when we look at this knowledge, it's how it's being used, how it was used, and, dis and discern the difference between use for good, use for evil, because everything in this world is what God created. Now, Things have been corrupted, so we have to be careful of that. We need to be careful it's not corrupting us. And we also need to be wary that pharmacacia is going to have a significant impact in the end time, and we need to be wary of that. So, again, I go back to the, it's the application of the knowledge. Knowledge is neither good nor evil. It's how, it, it's, how it's applied. Absolutely. Great question great answer we'll move on to the next question that comes from Sarah and this kind of goes along with a question they've already answered she says does Gary think there is a possibility of the two houses being the two witnesses yeah I'm not sure what the word houses comes from uh, I would whether assume or not that like is Judah and about, Israel uh, whether that's talking about Israel or not, but um, and I've never looked at uh, um, connecting a house in, but maybe there's something in there that somebody can send me that maybe I should be digging into it. But I've not gone down a trail of researching the houses when when um, the two witnesses are being talked about. But I, I would need a clarification on that. All right. 
Sarah, if you are listening, feel free to uh, write in the chat or send us an email and we'll make sure that we revisit this question in a future time. Well, with that said, we'll move and on. Just, I, and I should... And, okay. I, and I, I can't think that she's talking about the uh, the two houses of Israel, but because you have the 144,000, you've got all of the tribes except for Dan, which I think is showing a demonstration to the Babylon religion uh, connection there for the end time. And the 144,000 are there in the first three and a half years uh, working in a similar role to what the two witnesses are doing. So uh, if, if the question was intended for Israel, I, I would say probably not in that respect because I think they're represented uh, in the 144,000. Excellent. All right, we'll move on to the next question that comes from Harriet, and she says, why are all the elites pedophiles? Well, I, I, I can't verify that they all are. Um, I think there's uh, there's an issue there, and I think uh, a lot of the elite uh, are part of the secret societies, and they're part of the bloodlines, and that uh, pedophilia is part of what they do at that um, adept level. And so when you look at the real high end of the elite, uh, they don't have to physically look like or be seen to be part of a secret society because they are initiated into the mysteries from childhood and uh, they have to wait to a certain age um, to actually re receive a, a depth title. Uh, and even though they may be well beyond first level or first degree adept, which people might also refer to as 33rd degree school, Scottish right. Um, as you go up higher, there's at least seven or nine degrees of uh, of a depth level. Some people say there's more, but I, I've not been able to confirm higher than seven or nine from my own research. And so um, that at those levels and at those purity of the bloodlines, that's not an uncommon thing. And that's because they look at humans as mundane and inferior because they have the bloodlines of the Nephilim as the demigods whose parents were the gods. And that they believe they are above us and we are mundane humans and they have no respect for us. And that's why in the time that they're planning, which they call the New Age, they only want humans there to uh, go into their false millennium as slaves, servants, and people used for ritual sacrifice and other uh, abominable things in the rituals like um, taking human children and doing what they do with them. It, it's, you know, it just, it makes my blood boil when I think about the pedophilia, pedophiles and uh, how they're used in these rituals. Uh, so I wouldn't say they're all like that, but I don't know that. Um, but I do know that in the pure bloodlines and at the adept level of the secret societies, this is not an unknown thing. But that might at least explain, I guess, in terms of where and how that connection is with the elites. All right. Thank you for that answer. And we'll move on to 
our fourteenth question and the last question on our list before we move into questions from the live audience this question comes from Robert and it says how long will it take for the elect to be detained by the Antichrist before being tried publicly yeah I'm not even sure they're going to be tried I think they're going to be hunted down and uh, with beheadings I would think that there's probably going to be you know public spectacles on that but you know when we look at the system that they're implementing that is we're seeing the the building blocks for that i mean i expect uh you know everybody who um is going to be loyal to um antichrist and to satan to worship satan they're all going to receive a mark and you can't buy or sell without having that mark so the only way you're going to not be identified is being in the middle of nowhere. Uh, because if you look at the technology, you're going to need that to survive. And if you look at the technology in terms of the cameras being everywhere, GPS tracking, satellites, everything, even if you're in the middle of nowhere, by the time we get to that point, the technology uh, is going to be able to track you down with infrared lighting very, very quickly. And I don't think they're going to have a trial. You refuse the mark, you will die. Whether or not you're beheaded in rituals to satisfy the bloodlust of the people who have sworn their loyalty to Satan, just as you saw Christians being persecuted and slaughtered in the Colosseum of the Romans. This will be a more technological type of thing. They'll probably have that. But I expect people's heads will be taken um, instantly um, when many of them are captured because they're not going to, there's going to be so many that they're not going to be able to do public trials and they have no interest to do it except for doing the propaganda uh, for the people who are, are wanting that to watch that. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of time. I think there's, I know there's going to be people that survive into the millennium, but they are going to have to be extraordinary in their ability to hide and escape with the technology that's going to be coming after them. Absolutely. It is uh, quite an insane time with the technology that's coming. Uh, I just... You know, everything inside of my body wants to be scared, but I want to encourage everyone to have no fear. Have no fear of those who can harm the body. And remember that we have eternal life awaiting. And to die in this world is nothing but gain, really. Uh, when we think about what actually happens and what this, this world and this body really is when we're in this fallen state, uh, just be encouraged that the time is coming, the Messiah will return, and hold on to that faith no matter uh, what tribulations and trials we face because it will come and it has come before and just as the faith of the martyrs of the early age that lived under the romans i mean just think about the amazing faith that they had and that all of the people that were around all the pagans all those polytheists all the polytheists that learned from the faith of the martyrs and were encouraged by the faith of the martyrs to not bow down to Caesar anymore and who repented and accepted faith. You know, I, I really feel like the martyrs of 
the last days, uh, we have a chance prayerfully to to imbue others with that same type of faith. But with that said, we are done with our 14 questions. Woo! So we get to move on to the live questions from the live chat. So we have been taking questions, and the first one uh, came from Bill, and he said, Gary, have you heard of the mud flood events and the human resets? Well, I've heard of the mud floods and mud fossils and uh, things like that. And the resets, I'm not sure what exactly what that reset means, but that might, again, go to what was asked earlier about catastrophes that come along at certain times. Um, certainly a possibility, but, but we don't have uh, scripture for that. So uh, I find uh, some of the uh, research on, on mud fossils and things are very, very interesting. I it's certainly not always uh, from a Christian perspective that uh, a lot of the conclusions and things are being made from, but uh, I, I do find it quite interesting. So, yes, I, I am aware of it. I haven't spend, spent uh, years researching it or anything like that, but I, I certainly am aware of it. All right. And the next question also comes from Bill. He says, when you say... You answered a question earlier that you said the beheaded would rule with Christ in the millennium. And Bill's question is, what roles will they play, in your opinion, the the beheaded that rule with Christ? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. So uh, I think they are going to be... Um, I don't think they're going to be like governors, although it does say that they're going to be ruling with Christ. Um, so I, I can't rule it out. But I think even if they are sort of ruling and, and being governors or uh, being responsible for areas, I think their testimony to what happened in the end time that's going to happen is going to be, and their faith and what it took to stand up against that will be what they are communicating for all of the people as witnesses to how bad it was. And I think that's what they're going to be doing is they're going to be part of the ruling class, even, you know, they've been resurrected. Um, but I think they're going to be sharing how bad it was so that when Satan is released, uh, from the abyss at the end of the thousand years, he, you know, what he does is he does what he was doing before and he raises another Magog Gog alliance to march on Jerusalem. And uh, so it's just going to uh, be a reminder the, to the people of what uh, Satan did before and what Satan is going to be doing again. And people will still be deceived because he obviously raises this large army to to rebel again at the end of the at the thousand years so i think that's what they're going they're probably doing a governing aspect but a testimony to what happened and a testimony of their faith and what faith you know you have to have if you're going to remain loyal to god and to jesus forever Thank you for that answer. Our next question is also from Bill. He says, Gary, do you think that humans have been downsized? 
So if I understand that question is it would come from the ideology that uh, all the people were giants before the flood and all of the plants were uh, larger um, before the flood than what they are today. And uh, I'm not sure that I would agree with that. Again, we don't get scripture for that. But even if that was the case, uh, when it talks about the Nephilim being created in Genesis 6, if humans were giant size, then these things would be even bigger still because there were giants compared to the humans before the flood and the Adamites. So possibly, but um, I, I don't think so. I, I've not been able to, and I've been asked this uh, a lot over, over the last few years, and I, I just can't find any scripture to support that. So my, my gut feeling is, is likely not. All right, thank you for that. And we'll move on to our next question that comes from Don. Do you believe they are terraforming the earth for the return of the Nephilim? Well, if, if they actually require something that's different than they would be, um, and that might even go to the question that was asked just before, was somehow the atmosphere a little different for the Nephilim to return so that you could have these large monsters that could survive. But I'm not convinced that they would be of that sort of size where you'd have to have a completely different sort of uh, terraform planet. Uh, I think what they're doing, if they're doing anything, is, is they're not necessarily doing it in, in, a, in a nature that requires, it would be a requirement for the survivability of the, of, of the new Nephilim, however they're created or show up. I think if they're doing anything, they're corrupting the earth. And if you look at what scripture says um, in terms of the flood, and I think this is what's coming is the apocalypse by fire, where the first one was the apocalypse by water, and that it's going to be like the days of Noah, as Jesus talks about in all aspects. And if we look at what happened before the flood, it was more than just the violence. And the word is corrupted. The whole earth was corrupted, and that the Hebrew word chakath, which means more than just violence. It means decayed, destroyed, changed, spoiled. And I think what that meant was they were changing the DNA, the genomes, everything they could with the technology coming from the fallen angels that married up with the knowledge of, of Enochian seven sacred sciences, as they like to call it, that accelerated it after that marriage. Uh, changed the whole sort of aspect of the earth and corrupted everything. I also think that's why when the, the story of the flood happens and all the animals come to the ark for Noah, it's more than just a logistical issue where, you know, how could Noah go and get a representative of every species to go on the ark? I think God knew which ones weren't spoiled or corrupted and sent them there uh, to start the new world off again, just as he sent eight new people that were uncorrupted. So I think it's more likely that that's what's going on than they're trying to terraform so that it will be easier for Nephilim to, to live. And they certainly won't need it for fallen angels because they 
seemingly have a, an ability to take whatever form that they want in the physical world. So if they can do that, they can breathe, live in, in any sort of dynamic. So not, not thinking terraform would be my short form answer. Excellent. Speaking of breathe, please go ahead and take a deep breath and I'll go ahead and read very slowly our next question that comes from M. Greer and they ask, was Cain the son of Satan? Well, there's a lot of people that believe it and uh I, I lean slightly away, although I understand the argument, uh, and people have probably heard me say a few times, I need um, direct scripture to uh, authenticate something, and we don't get direct scripture that says Cain was the son of Satan. Uh, we do get scripture that um, he was the son of Adam and Eve, and the, the way it comes about is using some sort of allegorical interpretation uh, from uh, the Garden of Eden uh, and sort of taking seducing and eating of the fruit as being a sexual act, um, which are possible meanings as you take that back, but it's at odds with the narrative that the fruit was good for eating and was good for knowledge. And so I recognize that argument and also recognize that Cain sounds uh, a lot like the word. Um, um, I'm trying to think of what the, what the word is. It's, it's Hebrew kana for uh, begotten and that uh, he was, you know, people will take that and, 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 and make a case that oh, was begotten or acquired that, and so that's where Cain derives from, except that Hebrew doesn't show that that's derived from Kana, but it is very, very close in, in its enunciation. And again, I'm talking about the Cain uh, birth account where, when um, Adam and Eve have Cain, as you take those words back to Hebrew. So I'm not, I don't rule it out. Um, and I know Zen, and Zen makes a really good case for it, and he brings in the Targum, um, but again, the Targum isn't scripture, but I do recognize that uh, there was a significant sect of the, the Jewish people and the, the, uh, uh, the Jewish priests who used the oral traditions of the Targum uh, and understood it that way. But again, I don't have the scripture to, uh, to substantiate it. So again, I am agnostic on that, but I lean against it. Um, but I'm open to the fact that if there's a possibility that that's the case. I just don't have scripture. And then when people ask, about, ask me about, well, what about Genesis 3.15? That is about the only literal one that you could make that case. But you don't need Cain being the son of uh, Satan and Eve or Lilith, depending on which tradition that, that you're looking at, um, because you have the Nephilim being created in Genesis 6, which is uh, from the seraphim angels, which are the serpent angels, which could be the seed of, of the serpent as well. So I'm open to it, but I lean against it. And it's not like I'm dodging that question. It's just that it, I don't have that smoking gun verse. Um, and again, it's, you know, and we get that a number of times in scripture, whether or not it's how Giants show up again after the flood, 
there's a few different ways, except we don't have a smoking gun verse that tells us how they show up. And I recognize that there are, you know, it could be somehow on the ark, could be somehow with angels, could be in the earth, off the earth, or um, they escaped out of Tartarus, or there was a second incursion, which is my preferred position. But just because I have a preferred position, because I don't have scripture for my preferred um, uh, position, doesn't mean I dismiss the other possibility. So I'm open to it, but I don't have enough to say that that's the case. And I do have that sticking verse where Cain is the son of Adam and Eve. So I need something more than allegory uh, to overrule that, to substantiate it. All right, thank you for that answer. Our next question says, do you think Joseph Campbell, the guy who helped create the fake Gnostic religion of Star Wars, and George Lucas are secret Illuminists? I think so. Um, their knowledge is too great not to be. And uh, they promote those ideas in ways that they have to have a power base and money and uh, distribution channels to deliver that information and get it to the mass market in the ways that they have. So it's not an unusual tactic because if you look at most of the literature, whether it starts with Shakespeare or it goes into fairy tales or it goes into science fiction or what have you, you get so much of that literature and entertainment that is a cult base that is telling about their belief system, their history, and what they believe is coming. So um, Walt Disney would be another classic example who was uh, a Mason and likely Rosicrucian because he's in the entertainment aspect, which is um, part of what the Rosicrucians look after in terms of keeping their uh history and their genealogies and their belief system alive and of course you've got all of those different fairy tales and everything else that goes on over at disney that they became famous for and that's not a coincidence he's just promoting that aspect of it so when i look at uh science fiction as a whole it's all promoting that same sort of ideology and uh, i believe it's a, a well-funded and a well-used tactic of the polytheists to prepare us for the end time to deceive us. So the simple answer is, again, is they are either adepts and Rosicrucians, or they are sponsored by them. Excellent answer. And thank you very much for that. Our next question says, I know you are not a date setter, but do you feel that we're in the sorrows with increasing birth pains? Yeah, I think so, uh, because that's all part of the fig tree generation uh, that Jesus talks about at the end of the signs. And uh, so the birth pains are something that happens before the last seven years and continues on, just as you've got as a classic example of birth pains getting stronger and in a literal linear manner in terms of how I look at Revelation and the Bible and particularly as well as literal and placing everything around what Jesus said first as opposed to vice versa. And then in this case where he's talking about the birth pains, you have the seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments. And so the seals have 25% destruction 
33% on the trumpets, and then it would be 100% uh, destruction unless Jesus were to come before uh, and prevent everything from being destroyed. So those sorrows get stronger and more intense, even as outlined with the uh, the judgments of the last seven years. And those start to begin before. And I think that's all part of what happens in the fig tree generation. You can pick what, however long you think a, a generation is, whether it's 40 years that a king rules, which probably isn't that, um, but I recognize that's one definition. You have 70 years, uh, which a lot of people um, look towards in terms of a generation, and you also have the 120 years that life is limited to. And if I look at uh, what we're seeing, I think the end time is on the horizon and that we are in that fig tree generation, and I tend to look at Jerusalem uh, and or Israel being... Um, created as a nation that God is going to be standing up and fighting for at least a remnant of the Jewish people in the end time with the God war and then with the Jews fleeing Jerusalem at uh, and Judea uh, at the midpoint of the last seven years that he's going to protect uh, as they wait for the rest of second exodus of visible Judah and awakening lost Israel to be uh, taken to meet them in the wilderness in the end time just before Armageddon. And uh, I look at, um, I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought. What was the question again? <laughs> no worries at Hello? all. The question, I'm sorry about that. The question you was know, specifically. Uh, I'll get back on track. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, the question was specifically, uh, do you feel that we're in the sorrows with increasing birth pains? Right. Last Yes. So Jerusalem, uh, 1967, Israel, 1947. If, if you put 70 years on that, you've got a window of 1917 to 2037. If it's 120 years, um, then it could be longer. But I do believe we're in the fig tree generation. And I do believe that it's uh, Jerusalem is the key because that's where the temple is. That's where the uh, sacrifice is going to have to take place in the first three and a half years on an extremity or a wing of, of the temple. And that um, the fig tree is also the tree that Jesus uh, makes go dead in his time. And then he uses the allegory when you see the fig tree uh, blooming again as that fig tree generation. So I think that's all pointing towards uh, Jerusalem as the key. But I, I do think 2017 to 2037 is a possible window of that. And I would say closer to, you know, uh, 2017 being out for the, the last uh, seven years um, starting, but it could start at any point in time between now and then. But if it's uh, if I'm wrong, or if, uh, you know, a generation is longer than seven years, then it's going to be out further. But I think the signs are, are there. And uh, my, my research would suggest that, you know, it's on the horizon, but we're definitely not in the last seven years right now. But we are seeing the birth pangs start to uh, get more severe and will continue to get more severe as we get closer to the signing of the covenant uh, as talked about in, in Daniel 9, uh, uh, the covenant of death that uh, 
I won't go down that rabbit hole, but the, the covenant uh, in Daniel 9.27. Absolutely. We're definitely seeing the signs of the season. So we'll go on to the next question that says, who is the Joel chapter 2 army? Oh, I love that one. Uh, it's a great question. And if you read Joel closely, you've got chapters 1 and 2. And then you have three and four, and three and four is talking more is talking about the Armageddon War. Joel one and two is talking about uh, a war that is not Armageddon, and this is a huge army uh, that's never seen before. This, in my research, shows tells me in terms of the descriptions of the characters is the Revelation nine war, which is the two hundred million man war. So if you look at the description of of the army in Joel 1 and 2, it's very similar to the description in Revelation 9. And I also think it's the same war as the Gog and Magog war. And I look at Gog and Magog as being names of giants that uh, were part of the Greek mythology and as sons of Iapetus and or Poseidon, because I think Iapetus and uh, and Poseidon are the same god with just different names in, in various Greek accountings of, of legend and religion. And they were the offspring of them. And I think uh, that if you look at the descendants of Japheth, they migrate into Scythia and into northwest Turkey, um, where I think they took on the names of the giants that they went and dwelled amongst after the flood. I don't, again, I go for second incursion, so I think uh, the giants that are created after the flood uh, took on the names of the giants before the flood, but I recognize there's a strong argument for other ways that they show up as well. So I think this is the Revelation 9 war, and this is the false Armageddon, because how could you have anything greater than this war, right? And it comes in the time of the trumpets, not in the time of the bull wrath. And so this is the Armageddon war that Antichrist is going to take credit for as a false Armageddon and as part of his pedigree uh, to call himself the Messiah. Excellent. Thank you very much for your answer. Uh, we are down to the last five minutes. So this is the speed round officially. Thank you for entering. You'll get 10 points for every answer that you get correct. I'm just kidding. Uh, take your time, and we really appreciate the thoroughness with which you give to everyone, and we definitely look forward to setting you up with a nice booth at the conference where you can have, uh, we'll, we'll definitely help you get all of these resources that you mentioned printed out and all the handouts that you have. Uh, you're such a blessing to so many people, and uh, just everyone in the chat is saying thank you, thank you very much. Uh, we praise the Most High for you, and uh, Dawn said that she appreciates you because she doesn't want to be deceived, and she doesn't want to let down her daddy. And, yeah, we really appreciate all of your efforts. So I think we might have time for one more question before we end the episode. Sure. So this question comes from Doormat, and they said, What is your opinion on the Colburn Bible and its version of the Genesis creation account? Yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's an interesting read. Um, 
and I, I certainly would not uh, not advise people to 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 read it. Um, I think uh, to always, though, if you're going to read extra uh, curricular material to make sure you understand uh, the biblical version and you understand what is consistent with the Bible and where it strays from the Bible and uh, re read it with uh, that sort of context. And I think you'll find it'll provide, uh, you know, some good contextual information. And it's a, it's a very, very interesting read. There's no doubt about it. All right. Well, we really appreciate your answers and your time. And if we didn't get to your questions tonight, uh, please email us at sacredwordpublishingllc at gmail.com with the subject line, questions for Gary. And we'll make sure that we add it to the list. And, yeah, we, uh, we always appreciate having you here, Gary. Uh, would you like to go ahead and give out your contact information one more time just for everyone? Sure. If uh, people are wanting to get a hold of me and... Uh request some of the uh, documents or uh, maybe information um, that uh, you uh, would like to be receiving. If I have information on that or just ask a question, get a hold of me through my website at the genesis6conspiracy.com. That's genesis6, the number 6conspiracy.com. Uh, you can also get a hold of me through Facebook under Gary Wayne and or uh, send me a message with Messenger at Facebook uh, or post on my a question on my timeline. Uh, and you can also get a hold of me uh, through uh, my Twitter account at GaryWayne63, at GaryWayne63, and I will get back to you. Excellent. Thank you so much for uh, providing all your contact details and for all that you do for everyone who is seeking. Uh, there was one comment that I just had to bring up. One of our listeners said that she had a job offer in Ireland and was doing some research with some of the things you were teaching and she denied her job offer. So I'm not sure exactly where that comes from, but she wanted me to let you know that. Um, so yeah, with that said, <laughs> would you like to go ahead and close us out in prayer? Sure. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, permitting and allowing us to congregate in the fashion that we have tonight and thank you so much that people could make time to ask questions and hopefully share the information with so many other people that may be out there listening where those questions were on their minds and we thank you for making uh, that available for you for us and we thank you for all of the things that you do for us every day we thank you as our creator and a creator of all things and all things that we have and all things that we will ever have. And we pray all of these things uh, in the name of, of our Redeemer, the Word Jesus, who sits at your right-hand side and testifies to you for us and all of the saints. We also pray in the name of the Holy Spirit in your great and holy name. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you so much for joining us, brother. And thank you, everybody, for joining We'll see you next time. Shalom.